Welcome to a special episode of Do Justice, the podcast. Welcome to the fifth episode of the special Lenten series, Contagious Hope. My name is Brianne Swan. I use she and her pronouns, and I am Minister for Social and Ecological Justice with Shining Waters Regional Council, part of the United Church of Canada. Contagious Hope is produced and hosted by the Reverend Alexa Gilmore of Windermere United Church in Toronto and is available every Thursday throughout the season of Lent on the Do Justice podcast feed. To ensure you won't miss an episode of this special series, as well as other upcoming Do Justice broadcasts, please be sure to subscribe. And now, here is Alexa Gilmore with Contagious Hope. I'm Alexa Gilmore, and this is Contagious Hope. So it feels like people have to make this decision of whether they're going to freeze outside or if they're going to risk catching COVID inside, which to me is not really a choice at all. Hello, friends. Today, I'm in conversation with Greg Cook and Lorraine Lamb, outreach workers at Sanctuary Ministries of Toronto. But most people simply call it Sanctuary, a place in the heart of Toronto where you can go to be seen and celebrated, walked with and cared for. Guided by the gospel, the heart and center of this community are the very people who are often excluded in the mainstream. Those experiencing poverty, lack of housing, addiction, mental health crisis. At Sanctuary, they can get meals, health clinic support, arts programs, street outreach, Sunday services, and so much more. Their website says, the most important thing we do is spend our lives together. From doctor's appointments to birthday parties, from evictions to finding a home, from jail visits to family visits, from mourning death, violence, and loss, to celebrating reconciled relationships. It's not uncommon for the people in sanctuary community to say, this is the closest thing I have to family. Lorraine and Greg... Thanks for taking time to share your pandemic story with our listeners today. Thanks for inviting us. Yeah, thanks for this uh, opportunity. It's an honor. Well, I wondered if we could actually start uh, a little bit more personally today. What is it about the work that speaks to your heart and gets you up in the morning and to work each day? For me, it's the main thing is the connection, the friendships in our community. It's um, the chance to both know people in in a meaningful way and also be known. The chance to uh, listen and be listened to in in a in a space that um, both like I very clearly have something to offer at, at times, act as like a kind of a person who's able to give things that we're able to resource um, that people need, whether that's a a tent or a sleeping bag or connect someone with, say, a, a doctor's appointment or a housing appointment. 
I'd, I'd say more than that. It's it's the conversations grow into friendships over years and now been over a decade here. Um, I think it's 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 just a, a richness that I that I look forward to. Yeah, I, I think uh, like I've worked elsewhere and done similar work, but I think and again we we definitely don't always get it right, but I but we try to offer space for deep connection um, and not just a kind of a professional institution where where you put in your time. So we work really hard to to not that not for that not to be the case. Um, and so I really appreciate that about this uh, this place and this community. Yeah, I would definitely also echo the community driven approach in terms of how we try to do things. There are some days where working here feels like work, but there are also other days where showing up really feels like opportunities to just get to hang out with people that I really, really care about. And as Greg mentioned, like friendships that have been built over a long period of time. So I really, for me, like it's pretty sweet to know that I wake up and get to hang out with friends and call that my job essentially. And it's also a huge privilege, I think, for myself to feel like I can be journeying with people that I care about, but also there is a reciprocity in that this community also really supports me as well. Lorraine, you mentioned journey, and I was thinking about how when I look back on my life, I can see moments that led me to be exactly where I am today. And I wondered if either of you would be willing to share one story or a moment in time that led you to be a sanctuary outreach worker and community member, a story or a moment that sheds light on why you are doing what you do. I actually grew up in a culture, in a church culture that really celebrated the idea of like, um, I quote, serving people. And so for me, it was always, I always kind of wanted to be involved in spaces where I felt like I could give something. And I actually, I remember being in my first year of undergrad and I showed up at a community drop-in that's actually just down the street from Sanctuary. And I showed up with the intentions to like, you know, okay, I'm going to help cook a meal for poor people. And um, they asked me to make beet soup and I cut up turnips instead (laughs) because I couldn't tell the difference between beets and turnips. And so they were very kind and just said, you know what, Lorraine, why don't you just go sit in the dining room and get to know our guests. So I was like, okay. And so I spent time in the dining room pretty consistently over a number of weeks and got to know the community really well. And I very quickly learned that like the idea of community is that there is mutuality. It's not just about what I have to give, but what I have to receive from a community that often is assumed to have nothing to give. And so the longer that I built relationships and friendships here, the more that this community became like an extended family and friendship. And it was actually people in this community who brought me to Sanctuary. They were like, oh, you should come and, you know, see this other place we go to to have lunch and hang out with people. And so I followed them and they were the ones that brought me to Sanctuary. And there is a common thread amongst our team and that we all kind of show up and then we don't end up leaving. (laughs) So here we are. I love it. Greg, do you know the thread that you followed a moment in time to get you to Sanctuary? Yeah, I'm definitely more of a thread than moment in time person. (laughs) Uh, My partner bugs me about that. Um, So I think for me, uh, like, so my childhood, I grew up um, actually in in Southeast Asia, moved around a lot, I guess, interact with people that didn't have uh, materially very much 
And then I would come back to Canada. I lived in Etobicoke, have neighbors who had lots of things and pools in their backyards. And so I think one of my big questions growing up was why is the world this way? For university, I studied political science and history, I think partly to answer that question. And so I really wanted, I think part of my answer was really wanting to do something about that, that inequality, the fact that uh, some people have so little uh, materially and some people have so much. But I think also in the midst of that, I also recognize that often having a lot doesn't doesn't mean fulfillment or necessarily happiness. And often people, we can learn the most from people that are, say, maybe at the margins about community and what it means to, to belong. And so I think ultimately, I worked at a few drop-ins at places, but I think ultimately one of the things that drew me to Sanctuary was both this chance to kind of engage in, in a place, in a city with a lot of wealth, and and get to know people who don't and 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 kind of figure out with them how to how to try to change things but i think also i was ultimately looking for a place to call home um because i traveled so much as a kid i didn't really felt feel i had a home mm-hmm. and so i think that's one thing i think that draws a lot of people here is is whether whether we come as people who who uh, like don't have a house um or or maybe in my situation as more of a middle class person but also wanting to find some sense of home and belonging I'm so grateful that we didn't start with the question, describe, you know, what sanctuary is, um, but that we started with this question of how did you find your way there? Because in that question, I, I heard some some themes that already point to what it sounds like you're going to tell me sanctuary is. I The themes of mutuality, of deep connection, community and a place to call home um, has just set my kind of imagination ablaze. And I would love it if you could help me by, and the listener, by setting the scene prior to COVID-19. So about a year ago, uh, what was the work that was happening at Sanctuary a year ago? I I think in, I mean, in many ways, it's very different. In many ways, there's a lot of similarities. So January last year, when we were, definitely weren't talking very much about COVID, it existed. I don't think it was called COVID at the time. Mm-hmm. We had people camping on our property, for example. So like something that's been ongoing is the city, a thing that's kind of been, we see much more now during COVID, but people were camping in parks and in ravines and we were trying to support people. And we it gotten so bad that the shelters are full and housing was just too expensive that we said we couldn't in the middle of winter turn people away from pitching a tent and trying to survive the winter. Um, and this was definitely not an ideal situation. I'd argue for anybody, definitely for the people living in tents, but we felt that it was safer for them. And they, in conversation with them, they felt it was the best option they had at the time. Mm-hmm. And so that was both, I think, obviously complicated, most complicated for people in the tents, but also for our relationship with, with the city and, and politicians and neighbors and, Hmm. Um, and so we were trying to figure out how to navigate that well and also figure out what, what does it mean to, to as much as possible be on the side of our, our friends who have, um, don't have a lot of wealth and are kind of been marginalized by society. And so that was, um, we were pretty exhausted doing that and also support, like supporting a number of other, other programs like art and, um, our medical clinic. Um, I don't know if you want to talk more about that, Lorraine. I think before, before COVID, I think even just thinking back to my early times hanging out at Sanctuary, what really struck me was it felt like I was walking into a very bustling, homey space where, you know, um, 
people just kind of knew where they belonged. So we would have gatherings of community meals downstairs in our basement and people like, you know, had their designated couches where they like sitting on people had their spots, everybody knew where certain people would sit and wouldn't take other people's seats. Um, so there was a real sense of homeliness. Um, we did arts, and there was drama. Um, there was a lot of just you know, connecting organically in our backyard space and also in our front driveway area. And so I think that was really lovely because I think those were all opportunities for us to build community. And then our healthcare team provides a lot of, uh, sometimes they're like sort of longer term healthcare things, but sometimes they're quick sort of triage things um, for this community that often has a really hard time connecting with healthcare resources. So there were really just so many different branches of activity that happened out of this space. And so that was all before COVID, um, where we could actually gather in large groups and be in close proximity. And so with COVID, that has definitely changed for sure. I wonder if you could tell me um, a story that exemplifies sanctuary, that homely family feeling um, prior to COVID. Is there a story that you're able to tell uh, that pops to mind that kind of just encapsulates uh, sanctuary a year ago? I personally think of our community meals that were sort of the the big focus for our weekly gatherings. People who cook in our kitchen are often the same people who might be sleeping in our side alleys. I think that's a really beautiful piece of our community in that we recognize that our friends have a lot to share and their gift of hospitality is, is incredible. So I think, you know, seeing our community cook meals for their friends. And I think of how like, you know, people are all gathered at the door, sometimes an hour before we open, knowing that it's going to be dinner and like different groups of people who probably would never interact outside of here because they're so different, all kind of hang out here and know each other by name, um, address each other by name, offering smokes to each other. I think that to me is, is a bit of the homeliness that happens around around the building. And then when we would open up the doors for meals, people would come in and like, um, I remember one time somebody, there was a newcomer who was going to sit in this one spot. And one of our friends jumped up and was like, you don't sit there. That seat belongs to so-and-so. And And just um, looking out for each other. And, and yeah, like, I think that really kind of describes for me, just how people feel really at home. And then there is someone in our community who has been around for a long time. She just kind of wanders in and, you know, goes from table to table to say hi to everyone. Well, you know, go to the kitchen and check in with her friends there. And like, you know, she makes it a point to talk to everybody who's working because she just like, that is just like her space. And I think they know that it's their space, which is what makes it really cool. So now let's cast our minds forward to mid-March. 2019. And the province announces these sweeping public health regulations that are meant to help flatten the COVID curb. And I'm wondering what the effect on your programs and your community members was. I think like probably, I mean, I would say if, again, my guess is like most people, we, we very much, it's, it's an issue over there. Maybe like, maybe it will come here in a few months and we'll, our medical system's great. It's going to solve it we had to scramble and, and literally we had meetings over the weekend and, and kind of be prepared to serve food outside. So like before we would never, and then also trying to imagine and think through what 
if everything shuts down, like how that will that affect our community, right? How will that affect somebody um, who needs uh, to? So these are all questions we had to f- figure out. Can we respond? How do we respond? What we do? Do we do if we can't respond? I feel like, yeah, I think for myself, it made me actually realize even more so how much, uh, how many things that I consider just like basic privileges are actually huge, huge luxuries. So like one of the things we kept um, hearing about was the fact that people had nowhere to go to use the washroom. Like before people would rely on going to like Tim Hortons or like McDonald's and just like go in and, and use the space. But when everything shut down, like people had nowhere to go, like libraries weren't an option and all of these like fast food places were shut down. And so then whenever we were in the building, for instance, whenever there was any sign of life in the building, the doorbell was going on like the whole day because people just needed to come inside to use the washroom. And so I think like that was something for me that I had definitely never thought about in the same way until COVID happened. And I think I'm realizing there's so many things that, you know, like I, I know I take for granted, but now I'm like super aware that access looks so different for so many people in our community. It sounds like there was tremendous additional strain on on your community members. And I'm wondering what are some of the practical ways you, you spoke about washrooms and uh, and showers, but the practical ways that you ended up having to change your programs to be able to to meet the needs of, of your people. I think the, the question was like, we have some level of expertise and especially across different departments at Sanctuary, how do, how do we best use, offer those in this kind of time of crisis? And, and, and what, and so one thing that was very clear is that um, food security was going to be a big issue. Um, And so we um, doubled the amount of kind of meal meals that we served and hired extra people to produce more meals. And then also started for, for people that because of their immune compromise or mobility um, stuff, it made like if they had a place that how do we keep them safe and so that they can stay at home. Um, so started a kind of a, a mini grocery service. So that mm-hmm. was in that one area was one thing that we 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 focused on a lot. Another one, uh, again, that I think we're still trying to figure out is a number of people that have housing is is how does what does it mean to uh, support people and so they don't feel so isolated while also acknowledging that COVID is a real threat. And so setting up a warm line and trying to check in with people over the phone, mm-hmm. trying to connect people with phones if they didn't have them. Um, I think those are two two areas that, that we've tried to be creative and, and think about. Yeah, I'm just trying to think. Uh, I mean, I feel like we shifted our outreach for a bit too. So like before COVID outreach was, we would walk specific routes. But I think during when COVID happened, there was definitely more outreach walking into the encampments that's my sense and also like when we had a huge encampment beside our building we basically spent a lot of time just in the park connecting with people in the summer I definitely think that's one of the ways that we had to shift for sure oh I would say also art supplies um are a couple of our staff who are involved with the arts Mm -hmm. made it a point to to deliver art activity packages for people who are housed to try to keep people like entertained at home so that was a really cool shift that we did Oh, actually, one of the things, too, um, which is cool, is we were, because we had, like, such an increased need for for cleaning and extra help we needed in the kitchen, um, we actually, like, increased our food service. So um, we were able to hire a bunch of our community to work as contract staff, which I think for me has been one of the 
favorite things from COVID, um, like people in our community having dignified employment, um, and then they're working in a community that they call home. I think that has been really, really neat. And I've seen community members just talk about their new roles with such joy, and they're so excited about it, and they're always willing to do more. Um, that has been really lovely. Mm -hmm. Is there a community member in particular that you're thinking of when you you light up that way, thinking about how they've pitched in and, and supported the community member? One person for me, I, I know. Uh, so in one, another thing that we did that I think partly we no doubt have maybe slightly different people is we also, we, we've changed this now, but for a long time had two separate staff teams in case one staff team had an outbreak, we could still offer some services. Mm -hmm. um, so that was a big change um, and definitely affected what we understood to be community. Um, uh, but we thought we had to do that at the time to respond um, kind of responsibly to, to the COVID concerns. One person that was on our team that we hired, I'll say a little bit about her story because it was in, in the newspaper. At the time, um, they were staying at a respite nearby, um, Anna. The, Anna was really, uh, really concerned uh, for her well-being because she was in a crowded room. And so she'd come here and work and then have to go back um, to this this small respite. And she was really concerned that they the, the place where she was staying wasn't wasn't doing their due diligence. They also weren't getting the resources from the city to make sure that people could physically distance and be safe. And so uh, she she was so concerned, and even though at great risk to herself because of her status here, um, she spoke up and and talked about the conditions. Um, and that was one of the, I think, important pieces to pushing the city to take more seriously to make sure that people were able to physically distance and, and that the city um, acquired more hotels for people to kind of have their own room at a much higher number. But in, in the midst of that, Anna didn't, felt less safe uh, because she spoke truth to power ultimately. And speaking truth to power is something that the sanctuary community is actually known for. Um, I remember that in the early days of COVID, in the first few months when the city, it didn't feel like the city was moving fast enough, you took on a, a very... Um, important and unique role as a frontline agency. Um, can you tell us a little bit about that, how the this lawsuit that came about, what was the, the legal action that you took with uh, a number of others? Basically, uh, we, were, we had tried a number, a number of us had tried a number of things, um, whether that was direct action or going to the media and saying like, the city's saying that the shelters are are safe and people are physically distanced, but that was not definitely not what we were hearing from people in our community. And um, and so um, I was approached by I'd mentioned Kathy Crow earlier, um, who had a connection, and she's like, I, I think uh, confidentially, I think we might have a case where we can potentially litigate the city. And so um, she connected us ultimately with Jessica Orkin, who who was the lead lawyer um, in our case, and so they were. There was a number of, of legal agencies like uh, Aboriginal Legal Services and um, CCLA. And so it was, it was literally sanctuary versus the city of Toronto. Without breaking any confidentiality, like who are the people that you're, that are weighing on your heart right now that, um, that epitomize um, what we need to do right now? I personally feel like there are very long ways to go still. I think especially as we're entering the second wave of COVID. Um, Greg and I talked briefly earlier, but like, you know, we're seeing numbers sort of plateau a little bit for 
for most people, but the reality is the numbers are actually increasing for people who are staying in shelters and people who are homeless. So it's so I, I would say that we have ways to go. Yeah. Homeless people are five times more likely to die from COVID than those who aren't homeless. So that's really, really worrisome. A lot of places where people are living, if they're inside, are settings where they're gathered with other people or there's a lot of shared spaces. So there's such a high risk for people to catch COVID. And then the other reality is if people aren't actually staying inside these places, then they're outside and it's freezing. So the reality is that they could also freeze to death. So it feels like people have to make this decision of whether they're going to freeze outside or if they're going to risk catching COVID inside, which to me is not really a choice at all. Um, Right before we went into lockdown, there was a death in our community. And then over Easter weekend, just in April, we had three deaths in the community. And I remember talking to someone who said to me, like, I feel so sad, but it's impossible to feel sad because we're in COVID and we can't even hug each other and, like, we can't even do a memorial service. Um, I think that, to me, spoke volumes just about how heavy things feel for a lot of people. And so even if we eventually crawl out of COVID, (laughs) there are still all these other weighing things going on. I'm wondering, you know, listening to you and feeling that, weight of that trifecta of COVID and opioid and homeless crisis. Um, And as you look to the future, is this survivable or is this a breaking point? I am super encouraged, as Greg said, about the networking pieces, but I'm also really encouraged by the number of new connections that I have made with people who aren't necessarily working in this sector, in this field. Um, There have been so many people during the pandemic who um, are just get. I think maybe they're just getting more awareness about what's happening or they're maybe seeing tents more in their neighborhood or people just asking really great questions and and wanting to dive in. Um, I think that has been really, really encouraging to see for me. I also think like, you know, there there are a number of people in our community who who were able to get housing during this time and to see how well they're doing and how excited they are and how things are going, like that gives me hope to continue to press on and remind myself that like even if things feel really awful, it's not futile. Lorraine and Greg, I want to thank you so much for this virtual gathering, the rich storytelling. Um, and the important work that you're doing each day. It's been a real pleasure to spend some time with you. Thank you. It's been great to talk to you too, Alexa. Thank you so much. And also to the listener, I want to thank you for taking in these stories and allowing them to live in transformative ways inside you. This podcast, Contagious Hope, explores the way love spreads and has spread over the last year In these difficult times, it's important to know that there is no lockdown on love, no quarantine on grace, and that people of faith are always being called to the front lines, to the back alleys, to the lonely rooms, to the places where Christ is found. So thanks for listening. Contagious Hope is produced by Reverend Alexa Gilmore with assistance from the McGeechee Senior Scholarship. 
awarded by the United Church of Canada Foundation. Special thanks to our guests and our editor, Peter Restivo. To share your feedback and join in the conversation, email gilmorealexa at gmail.com. That's G-I-L-M-O-U-R Alexa at gmail.com. Thank you.